When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by, uh, by Sopater, son of Paris, and uh, I'm sorry, Sopater, son of Paris from Berea. I'm just getting started on these names. We're really going to struggle. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he had intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going, on, he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and we went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the, day, uh, on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus... Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit <clears throat> has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His, with His own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the, the words the Lord Jesus Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Father, as we open your word today, we have sung songs of your greatness and we've sung of your fame and poured forth your praise. We've said amen together in agreement. But Lord, we recognize that all of the words and songs mean nothing if our hearts and lives are not engaged. So we pray this morning, Father, that you would see us as we are, but don't leave us there. We confess to you that we carry sin with us, even after being bought by Jesus and and having our sins paid for, we recognize that we continue to pursue our own way over your way. Idols creep up all the time where we prioritize the things of this earth, created things over the eternal, over the one who created them. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for Jesus who demonstrated your love to us while we were still sinners by dying in our place. Now, Father, as we open your word, open our hearts, open our minds, that we would see the reasonableness of your truth and that we would be softened and repentant, ready to receive it, to make it ours. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, by the power of your Spirit and for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, about to get married and leave for the Air Force, a strange thing happened. And what maybe wasn't all that strange, maybe you've had a similar experience. That sounded like a funny thing happened. That's a different thing. But when I was getting ready to leave, embarking on this new adulthood, preparing to to take on a bride and start a family, preparing to leave my hometown and and go off and join the, the Air Force and aim high, a lot of relatives came around. A lot of friends came around. A lot of veterans came around. Not only military veterans, but veterans of marriage. And they came and gave advice. Here's what you need to know to be married. Some of it was good advice. Some of it maybe not so good. Here's what you need to know to survive basic training. Things like never volunteer for anything, right? Those of you who are in the military know what I'm talking about. Why did people come around at that moment in time to give me these parting words? Some just to say I love you. Just to say we're going to miss you. God bless you. We'll be praying for you. Why did they do that? Well, the same reason that we do that when our kids go off to college or when you have a graduation party and people give you those those notes, those cards that tell you important things, important pieces of wisdom. In fact, I, I don't think I have ever signed a graduation card without including some scripture for that very reason. What is the reason? Because when you care about someone, When they matter to you, you want the best for them. And at those moments when you're about to be separated, when a big change is about to happen, then the things that are most important, the the bits of wisdom that come to your mind, you got to share them because you don't know if you're going to get another chance. This is especially important for big life changes like going off to a deployment going into combat, moving across the country. Who knows what tomorrow brings? This is true every day. But when we love people, we want them to know the important things that we've learned. We want to warn them about the dangers they might encounter. We want to encourage them so they don't despair when times get tough. The best bit of advice that I ever received about marriage, and I don't even remember how many people said it, but I've passed it on to everyone I've ever counseled with. Times get tough. Stay. Just stay. 
Stick it out. You can get through this. God will carry you if you will remain faithful. That's the kind of encouragement that we all need. Not only in marriage, but in our Christian walk. That's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 20. And that's our core reality for today. Paul is encouraging them. You'll see that term encouragement or the concept come up over and over. Not only is he encouraging, but he's instructing. Not only is he instructing, but he's warning. Why is that? Because those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. I want to say that again because I want to make sure you get it. All right, let it sink in. Then I'll have us say it together. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. You got it? Let's say it together. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. Now this is an important concept. In fact, just to kind of drive it home, notice this. If we are one with Christ, we are one in Christ. Don't miss it now. If we are one with Christ, if we're in Him, then we are one in Christ. All of us who are in Christ, if we're all in Christ, then we're united in Christ, right? If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, then we're both one. This is an important thing for us to recognize. And what we see in Paul's example here is that as he's preparing to leave, to continue his journey, to go on to other places, to do other things, because God has called him forward, His heart is for the church. We've seen this repeatedly. Each time he makes one of these missionary journeys, he goes back and strengthens the churches that he planted. Because it's not just about bringing people into the family, it's building them up. It's encouraging, instructing, exhorting, rebuking, correcting, helping one another to walk the walk, to be able to stay in this pilgrim's progress toward this this final destination when we get home we're in it together those who belong to christ belong to one another and care for each other as family for the sake of time i'm not going to go through every piece of this passage but i want to encourage you to to kind of let your mind soak this in the reason we have an outline so you can take notes oh by the way i forgot i was going to See if anybody's missing. Chuck had some extra programs. If you need one, just put your hand up. If you did not get a program when you came in, we'll make sure that you get one because you want to be able to, to follow along. We've got some additional scriptures. Uh, we need one up front, and uh, we want to make sure that, that you're able to follow along. Because those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family, then we need to recognize some things. As one forever family in Christ, there are some things that we do here. There are things that are part and parcel of being part of the family of God. And if you are in Christ, you're part of the family of God. If you are not in the family of God, conversely, you are not in Christ. These things are inseparable. Well, I I love Jesus, but you know, I've... I've had enough of people. I've seen the politics in church. The Bible has an answer for that. When the Lord gives us instructions about this in the Bible, He says, I don't care. This is my family. If you love me, you love my family. If you don't love my family, you don't love me. Hopefully we'll see this as we go along today. As we recognize this family nature, we're going to focus heavily on the New Testament because the New Testament is where we see these things specifically explained to us and specifically under the headship of Christ. But if we look at the Old Testament, it's replete with this this collective movement from Genesis through the end of the 39 books, which we recognize as Malachi, Others might have it in a different order, but throughout the Old Testament, this Old Covenant, and then continuing through the book of Revelation, we see that God deals with His people both individually and collectively. In Genesis 12, He calls Abram out and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. We know that nation is Israel. 
And he works through Israel just as he did earlier from the very beginning of creation when he said it's not good for the man to be alone and he created the woman and he created them to create a family unit. And he gave them the first command, go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. To rule this earth in God's place through the mechanism of the family unit. God uses marriage, family, sexuality, at least in part, to a large extent, to illustrate His relationship with His people. When we see what God does in Israel throughout the Old Testament, it is an illustration not only of what God does with them, but what God does in a general sense with His people, extending to us Gentiles, His church. All of us who belong to Christ make up His church. John 1.12 tells us that as many as received Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. Well, if we're children of God, of one Father, then we're all siblings, right? And if we're not in Christ, if we don't receive that gospel, then we're outside of the family. I don't want you to be outside of the family today. If this is your first time hearing this message, I want you to know that God created you for a relationship with Him. And I don't have to beat you over the head with a Bible for you to recognize that you're a sinner. Every single one of us, if we're intellectually honest, we don't need a bunch of people preaching at us to recognize, I don't do what I know I should, and I do the things I know I shouldn't. I know that my motives are impure even when I do the right things. God's not like that. And God cannot have sin in His presence any more than darkness can exist in the presence of light. So my sin separates me from God. And I can't fix it. I can't undo my sin with good deeds or religiousness. Coming to church isn't going to fix it. But the good news is, paying the price for my sin and for your sin... Jesus, the perfect one, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us. He died in my place and in your place to take it away, to pay for the wages of my sin so that He could give to us eternal life as a gift. Everyone who trusts in Christ alone has eternal life. Life that starts now, not high in the sky by and by, but right now, believing Him gives us a life that is powered by His Spirit. Jesus said, I came to give life to the fullest, in abundance, a life that starts now and never ends. It extends beyond the grave, beyond this mortal body, beyond the existence of this creation, this full life that He gives us doesn't stop. There's no end point. And all you have to do to take hold of that is receive the gospel, to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. Confess your sin. Lord, I'm separated from You. I know this. I know I'm not good enough to earn myself into a relationship with You, but I'm trusting Jesus to be enough. And hand over the reins to Him. When we live for Him, He lives in us. Knowing this, you don't have to be outside the family of God. As many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. And when you become God's child, you become part of a forever family in a relationship that can never be undone. You didn't earn it, so you can't unearn it. It's a gift of God. And this family, this eternal family, means that you are never, ever alone. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. All right, notice this. As one forever family in Christ, we include all who are in Christ, regardless of differences. We include all who are in Christ, regardless of differences. Now notice, 
as Paul is out here on this journey, he is a Jew from the city of Tarsus. He is raised as a law-keeping Jew, and yet he's spending his time out here loving on people who are not Jewish. He starts out in the synagogue preaching to the Jews. They oppose it. He goes on to the Gentiles, those who don't know God at all. And they, he says, listen, God wants to bring you in. He wants to reconcile you to Himself. And these non-Jewish Gentile believers from various regions with different cultures, different customs, different ways of dressing, different ways of acting, different manners and, and things that they consider polite or impolite, you got to know he doesn't think they're all easy to get along with, right? If you've met more than 10 people, you know they're not all easy to get along with. If you know me at all, the longer you know me, probably the more I get on your nerves because that's just how it works. It's not really about that, is it? Paul goes out of his way to encourage and to love on these believers, those who are in Christ, regardless of differences. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Paul wrote that, same guy we're seeing here. He also wrote in Galatians 3.23, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is an inclusiveness in the body of Christ. All those who are in Christ form one body. As one forever family in Christ, we include all who are in Christ, regardless of differences. Turn, if you would, you can stay marked in Acts, we'll come back to it. But turn, if you would, to the right until you find the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, Paul again, writing to the church, he's writing back to the church at Ephesus with intention for this to be circulated throughout the churches. So he's writing to all of the churches, even though this particular letter is going directly to Ephesus. And notice that's where he's leaving now. There's a connection here. God has opened a door to him. Verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. He's talking about the differences, right? You were outsiders. And those who considered themselves insiders looked upon you unfavorably. There is a prejudice involved here. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship, <clears throat> excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All your differences are thrown away. It's not about how much you have in common. It's about the one person you have in common. My brother and my sister and I are dramatically different in many ways, but we will always be bound by our father and our mother. We have one blood flowing through us. That will always unite us. Same is true in Christ. Verse 14, For He Himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity. Let me say that again. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. I'm taking a little longer on this point than I will on the others, but I want you to understand what we see here is the reconciliation of man to God and man to man. God has reconciled Himself to humanity through Christ. Our sins separate us from Him. Jesus changes that. Because He paid for our sins, removing the barrier between us and God. And because all of us receive the same grace by the same blood, not by our traditions, our denominations, or our actions, that grace means that the wall between us is taken away as well. Understand that God has never, there is never a time in the Scriptures where we see anything I cannot say this loudly enough or often enough, that resembles racial bigotry. It doesn't exist. Why? Because God shows all coming from one. We all have a common seed, a common, uh, a common ancestor. So all the racial stuff is stupid on its face. Did that sound disrespectful or disdainful? Uh, I probably meant it that way. So, it is stupid on its face. It's unbiblical. It's irrational. It's unscientific. We need to drop it. But there is a division. And from Genesis 12 and moving forward, the division was between those who belong to God... Israel, specifically in the Old Testament, and those who do not belong to God. So there was a dividing wall between the family and those outside the family. But in Christ, even that wall has been torn down. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin or what denomination you come from. It doesn't matter what sins you have. Your sin, my sin, everybody's sin. It's the same in separating us from God. But in Christ, that dividing wall is torn down. And we who have tasted of grace are now one blood. We are united by His blood. We're family. And yet there's still a difference, isn't there? There remains the distinction of those who are his and those who are not his those who have received the son and said i I want in on this i want jesus to be mine to run my life and those who say i got it i'm good I'll, i'll take your religion but but i don't really want to have all that you know that personal intimacy i want to be able to make my own choices I don't want to surrender my will. There's still a distinction between the dead and the living. Before I digress too far, as one forever family in Christ, we include all who are in Christ, regardless of differences. Now, that only makes sense because those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. We are united. Next notice. As one forever family in Christ, we invest emotionally and practically in one another. We invest emotionally and practically in one another. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I have heard many times, I've even said it many times, that love is not an emotion. I would alter that. Love is not merely an emotion. But when you love someone enough 
to invest in them, to pray for them, to have a vested interest in their future, in their life, you can't help but have an emotional attachment to them. I wonder if that isn't one of the reasons among many that Jesus said, pray for your enemies, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, lift them up before God. Because if you're sincerely praying for somebody, not only does it move the hand of God, but equally important, it moves the heart of the prayer. You can't pray for somebody sincerely and think the same way about them. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that Paul saying that, that we don't think of one another the same way anymore. We don't view anyone from a human perspective. We used to. In fact, we used to view Jesus that way, but not anymore. We can only see people through the lens of Christ. And the lens of Christ is love. Love in its fullness, which is always truth in its fullness. They go hand in hand. As one forever family in Christ, we invest emotionally and practically in one another. <clears throat> 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Saying I love you means nothing if I don't back it up with the way I live. If I tell my wife that I love her while I'm running around with other women, think she's going to buy it? Of course not. Because that's not love. If I tell my wife I love her while I let her go do work around the house with my feet up on the table while I'm watching football, that's not love, is it? Get your feet off the table. No, I'm just kidding. That's, so, but do get your feet off the table. That's crazy. If I love, I act. As one, fa one forever family in Christ, when we love one another, we invest both emotionally and practically in one another. That's what Paul does here. He, he leaves. He's about to take off to, to go back to, to Jerusalem because he wants to celebrate he wants to celebrate the festival there. In the meantime, he gets his crew together that's going to accompany him. And he sends them on to prepare the way, to help with the encouragement while he stays behind to get things set right, to get some last bits of encouragement and wisdom. And along the way, as they're traveling, he's continuing to go back to the believers so that he can encourage and strengthen and instruct, and warn, and get them ready to be able to keep walking the walk without Him around. He's invested in them emotionally. He's invested in them practically. And as we read the New Testament letters that, Paul's, that Paul writes, there is this, this deep affection for every single one of these churches that he's writing to, even Rome, and he hadn't even been to Rome yet. He's writing to them with a deep love because we're united in Christ. And this love includes all who are in Christ regardless of differences, regardless of whether I've even met them. But I can't invest practically until I have a face to put with it. The theoretical idea of, I just love everybody. That's silliness. It's not love. That's a concept. We invest emotionally and practically in one another because those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. Therefore, as one forever family in Christ, we encourage each other to persevere and grow in Christ. As one forever family in Christ, we encourage, one, we encourage each other to persevere and grow in Christ. That's what Paul is doing as he's going around and encouraging them. He is telling them the same thing that I heard when I was going to get married. It's going to get rough sometimes. It's going to get hot once in a while. Stay. Stay the course. Be strong. Stand firm. Don't give up. 
there is a glory coming that is greater than this paltry suffering that we have in this life. It seems like everything and forever right now, but endure, bear up under it, be strong. Be strong in the Spirit. Be strong in the Word. Because your strength will fail you. You'll run out. But as Isaiah said, those who wait upon the Lord, they'll rise up with wings like eagles. We encourage each other to persevere and to grow in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church a letter of encouragement while they are enduring suffering and persecution. And he reminds them of what's going to come when the Lord returns and we're rescued out of this. He says to them, our memory verse for today, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. They're already encouraging one another. So his encouragement to them is to keep encouraging one another. Keep on, keep at it, persevere in loving one another in encouraging and building one another up. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another daily, constantly, all the time, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When we get discouraged, sin can creep in. The hardness, anger, pride, bitterness, worry, doubt, this happens when we become discouraged. It's easy when we feel alone, when we feel like there's nobody with us, there's nobody on our side. It's easy for the devil to make hay. He gets in there and he drags us down. He can't take us out of God's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But he sure can paralyze us. He sure can get us to walk around with our our hands in our pockets and our head down. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Someday I'll get out of this terrible world. Nobody is glorifying Christ with that attitude. As one forever family in Christ, we invest emotionally and practically in one another. We encourage each other to persevere and grow in Christ. Also, we instruct one another according to God's Word. We instruct one another according to God's Word. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 encourage us not to give up, not to forsake assembling together. And not just because it's important for us to get together and sing and and hear sermons. But he specifically points out, the writer of Hebrews specifically points out that we should be encouraging one another by getting together that we should be spurring one another on to good deeds so that as we walk together, as we are gathered, which is the nature of the church, that the synergy that comes from that would make each of us more like Christ. That we would be encouraged, spurred on. And that requires an instructional element to it. Notice what happens with Eutychus. Now, I've got to tell you, I've often, if we go back to Acts 20, I've often wondered why in the world this story is in there, right? Because every Sunday school kid probably has learned this story. The guy that fell asleep, and I, I remember a friend telling me, well, the message here clearly is that preaching long sermons kills people. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll pray for your safety, but we're going to keep going. So why is this stuck here in the middle of this passage that is really just... Paul's traveling and we're getting all this this stuff. Why is it here? So much of the book of Acts is is moving through this powerful action and we're seeing the gospel spread. And every time we we seem to encounter miraculous things, there's a purpose to it. It's the, the affirmation of who Christ is. It's the setting apart of, of the apostles. These miraculous things intervene with reason, with purpose. And then there's Eutychus. Fell asleep in a sermon and fell out the window. So as a pastor, I might say, if you fall asleep during the sermon, you could die. That probably isn't actually the message. So what is it? 
Notice what happens at the end of that particular passage in, uh, in, in verse 10 and following. So Eutychus has fallen out of the window, right? Falls three stories, dies. Paul comes scrambling downstairs. It's got to really interrupt your flow of your sermon, right? So you're up there, boom, he's off like a shot. Goes down the stairs, quick as a wink, throws himself on Eutychus, this young man. And as he does this, he tells them, verse 10, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. Now that, that always strikes me as hilarious. Dude just fell out a window. He died. You brought him back from the dead. And Paul's like, let's eat. Now, as described here, they're taking communion. They're breaking bread and fellowship together, but this bread that they're taking is the, the body and blood of Christ. And as they're doing this, Paul is not interested in everybody patting him on the back and saying, wow, you're amazing. You raised this guy from the dead. No, no. Let's get our focus back on Christ. Let's not lose sight of what matters here. He's alive. But the only reason any of us are spiritually alive is because Jesus died in our place and rose again. And notice what happens when he does this. He went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, did not shorten the sermon one bit, by the way. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. The purpose here again is to demonstrate, as the rest of the passage does, that Paul is invested in them personally. He is encouraging them. This comforting idea. Paul is bringing to them the hope of the reality of Christ. And it's in the middle of instruction that this takes place. Now, Paul doesn't normally preach all through the night until daylight. Why is he doing it? Because he's leaving the next day. This is your one shot. Your one shot to get the full teaching that I can cram into this moment. So I'm going to teach until dude dies. Then we're going to bring him back. We're going to teach some more. Because you need the truth. As one forever family in Christ, we instruct one another according to God's Word. He calls the Ephesian elders to meet with him. And he gives them this charge of taking care of the flock, shepherding God's flock. It's God's flock, not theirs, but they're there to guide them. In fact, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, Paul writes, back to the Ephesian church at a later date. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ Himself said, listen to the teachers. And he set some apart to be able to do that. Now, Paul makes a very, very strong point throughout his writings that the, those who are teaching have a greater responsibility, but they don't have a greater value. Nobody is inherently over anybody else in the body of Christ. But just like your older brother might be put in charge of you when mom and dad leave, it's the same kind of thing. Just like there is a hierarchy in the home, there is a hierarchy of sorts in the church, not based on human authority, and I'm going to lord it over you, but based on the ability by the grace God has given you to teach others. Lest you think that's only for clergy, for overseers and pastors, Paul brings this out in numerous other places. Romans 15, 14, he says, I, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, speaking to the, the masses of the church, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and notice this, competent 
to instruct one another. You don't have to have a Bible degree. You just have to have a Bible. You need to know Christ and walk with Christ. And you have the responsibility and the ability by God's Spirit to be able to instruct one another according to God's Word. Colossians 3.16 Let the message of Christ, the Word of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. This is the job for every believer. We are responsible to one another to have relationships that guide, relationships that help one another grow and mature in Christ. Let the Word of Christ, the message of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. Those who belong to Christ as one forever family in Christ instruct one another according to God's Word. Because we belong to one another, notice this, we also, as one forever family in Christ, guard the family against internal and external threats. We guard the family against internal and external threats. Again, in Acts 20, Paul has called the Ephesian elders to meet with them. He doesn't want to get hung up. He already knows the relationship that he has with them. So he, uh, he calls them together. And um, let's pick up with let's pick up with verse twenty. He says to them, "You know, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance by itself, that's only part of it. It's incomplete." Repentance and turning to God in recognition of His Son, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. We'll find out next time. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task of the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This is Paul's mission. This is why he's leaving, because he's got more people that need to know. Just prior to this part, we didn't, we didn't read together just now, but I read it earlier. It might have struck you as weird when Paul says, you know, I've, I did this in all humility. Well, that doesn't sound very humble. You know, you know how I lived. It's not bragging. It's him trying to get them to understand this is the example that leaders follow. If you're going to lead God's people, you need to be humble. Your heart needs to break for them. And you need to be diligent. You cannot be lazy. You must care about God's people. You must work. You must preach. You must be bold. Follow my example, my example he will say later, as I follow Christ. But notice this. verse 25 now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you we'll come back to that in the next point for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God now keep watch over yourselves first thing you got to watch yourself you can't be watching somebody else trying to take the speck out of their eye while you got a log in your, your own eye Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Tend the flock, which He bought with His own blood. I know that after I leave, here's this big warning, savage wolves will come in among you, those who are not part of the church, but will attack from outside, and they will not spare the flock. But notice there's an attack from inside, verse 30. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. I take that to mean from among the congregation, not from among the group standing with them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day and with tears. As one forever family in Christ... We guard the family against internal and external threats. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, and again in, in chapter 4, Paul writing to young Timothy, his assistant that he's left in Ephesus as a pastor, encourages them, he encourages him to guard the trust, warn them, teach them, correct, rebuke them. You've got to get this right, Timothy. And it culminates really in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, this is 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, understand as you're doing all this, that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for these very things that I'm telling you to do. To instruct, to rebuke, to correct, to exhort, even to encourage. Stay in the Word. Guard the family against internal and external threats. There's a great line in one of my favorite movies, Mel Gibson's movie years ago, The Patriot. Whereas they're about to head into war and the the preacher starts to go out and join the, the militia, the volunteers, and they're like taken aback. You know, minister? Reverend? What are you doing? And he says, a shepherd must tend his flock and at times fight off the wolves. That's part of being in the family. It doesn't take a preacher. It doesn't take an evangelist or a prophet or a Bible scholar or a professor. It takes someone who loves the family enough to not allow harm to come to it. So when we see false teaching creeping up in the church, we put a stop to it. Wait a minute. Let's look at the Bible. I know that's a popular book. I know that's a very popular podcast. I know this is something that the world is telling us we should believe. It seems really American and good, but let's look at the Scriptures. If you love the family, you defend it against external and internal threats. Lastly, remembering that those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family, we have another role. As one forever family in Christ, we entrust one another to our Father's sovereign grace. We entrust one another to our Father's, to our Father's sovereign grace. We, as family, walk together. We're invested in one another. Everybody who is in Christ is included. It doesn't matter if you like them in the flesh. Kill the flesh. Love them in the Spirit. We invest emotionally and practically. We encourage each other to persevere and to grow. We instruct one another according to God's Word. We help one another figure out what it means to walk in light of Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to live a holy life. We guard the family, whether the threats that come against it are from outside or from within. But with all of these things, we need to recognize that our brothers and sisters answer to our daddy, not to us. There comes a time, I know this because I was the oldest and therefore clearly the most responsible of all the children, without any question at times. Anyway, because I was given responsibility at times, there were times when I would say, this is what we are to do. And my brother and sister would say, blah, 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 I ain't doing it. Mostly Heidi, because Jeff would never do that. Heidi's a rebel. And I had an option. I could either have a fight with them and get into a bickering match, or I could trust mom and dad to handle it when they got home. As forever family in Christ, we entrust one another to our Father's sovereign grace. Notice Paul's closing words to those Ephesian elders. <clears throat> Having given them this warning, verse 32 says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commit you to God and to the word of His grace. I've, I've, I've 
given you instruction, I've invested in you, I've warned you, I've been a part of this relationship with you, but I don't control everything in life. I don't know what you're going to face. I don't know what I'm going to face. I just know that God is sovereign and His Word is true. So I'm going to place you in His hands and trust that the great lover of your soul will watch over you in a way that I cannot. In the same way, in verse 26, Paul declared that he was innocent of the blood of any of them. Why? Because he did his part and the rest is up to God. I didn't hesitate to declare the truth. If you don't like it, then you're going to have to talk to Dad. Because my job was to deliver the message. God's sovereignty gives us the hope, gives us the ability to rest when we've done all we can. When you've prayed for your wayward child and they don't seem to want to respond to the gospel, don't stop. But trust that God is in control. Keep praying. Keep committing them to Him. When you've prayed for your spouse, when you've prayed for your lost friend, keep committing them to Him. When you have invested in your Christian family, those who are in Christ, with whom you are one, with whom you will spend forever around the throne. You have a choice when you disagree. You can let it divide you. Don't do that. It's sinful and foolish. Or you can, as Paul, say, you know what? I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to make this right. All of us should think this way, as he said in Philippians, but... If on some point you disagree, the Holy Spirit will make that clear to you in time. I don't control anyone else's decisions, in the family or outside. I don't even control my own children's decisions. Parents, that should be a relief to you. You do the right thing. If they do the wrong thing, it's because God gave them their own brain. That doesn't mean let them do whatever they want especially if we're still raising them. Once they're out of the house, you're a little stuck. Just don't encourage bad behavior. Introduce those things that will help them see the truth. I'll let you put that together for yourself later. That's what we do with one another. I can't make you see Christ. I can't make you love Him and cherish Him as more precious and desirable than anything in this world. But if I can continue to teach you the truth, if I can continue somehow to make Him the most precious thing in my own life, and pray for you, and entrust you to His sovereign care, then the rest is up to God. We entrust one another to our Father's sovereign grace. Love recognizes that God is our ultimate caretaker. He's our ultimate master, our ultimate savior, guide, and the lover of our souls. To love one another means to entrust our loved ones into the loving care of our sovereign God. Let me wrap this up. If we're one with Christ, we're one in Christ. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. The basis of this forever family is not how much we have in common, but the Lord and Savior we have in common. We are in a very real sense one blood, related by the blood of Christ shed for us. If we love Him, we must love one another. It's not optional. And Loving one another isn't some theoretical thing, but a genuine connectedness in Christ. It can only be lived out in a committed relationship with real, imperfect people in a local church. It isn't about being the same. It isn't about having perfectly compatible personalities. It's not even about how much our siblings look like Jesus. It's about being united by His blood. If I claim to love the Lord but hate my brother or sister in the Lord, I'm a liar. If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, then we're one. 
Let's make it a priority to live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we close out our time together today, remind us that You have given us in Christ a forever family. Ah, it's such a wonderful thing when we get it right. It's such a painful thing when we get it wrong. Lord, even as I pray this now, I know that there are many sitting here who have unfortunately been burned by those who claim the name of Christ. Who have been broken by the church or by those who would claim to be the church. Father, remind us that your church is always going to be made up of sinful, broken people. And even at our best, even as we grow in sanctification, we're going to fail and disappoint each other. Lord, give us a deep and abiding commitment to the fullness of love and truth as we reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships. Teach us to encourage and build up one another. And I thank you, Lord, that in your church, we're already doing that. Help us to do it better, more consistently, and to never stop. We pray this in the name of the one who died for us, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.